Welcome to the College Football Playoff Show, where college football playoff contenders earn the right to be discussed and where the playoff never ends. Now, here are your hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Glad to have you guys back on Wednesday's show with us. We're going to talk a lot about Georgia this week. We haven't done as much Georgia. They're a little almost obvious, Shahan. I don't want to take for granted the greatest defense in college football history. So we are going to dig it. Is that too much? We're going to dig in a little more on this. I definitely have seen people making comparisons, Shahad. Statistically, at least. They had back-to-back shutouts a couple weeks ago. They dominated Kentucky again. People are throwing things like that out there about the Georgia Bulldogs, are they not? Yeah, no question about it. And I think that they have earned that in a lot of ways. I mean, the funny thing about it was heading into the year, we did talk about these defenses, of course. And one of the things that we said is that versus some of the other teams, Georgia lost a few more pieces. They have a few more guys that are playing in the NFL right now. But I do think that watching this team, and I've probably watched Georgia closer this year than almost any other year before, The thing that they do so well and the reason to me why their defense is so dominant is just they have so many guys that they can throw in a game. You know, I I know that I saw David Ubbin over at The Athletic make the case for Jordan Davis for Heisman, right? He's he's their great defensive lineman, space filler, destroys opposing offensive lines. He doesn't play even half of Georgia's defensive snaps, right? Like, that's how much they rotate, that they don't have to play their best players uh, on more than half the snaps in a game. So uh, they're a tremendously dominant defense. I mean, I, I think they do definitely have a case to be one of the greatest in the history of football. They had four... Defenders drafted in the top 100 of the NFL draft. Their two starting corners were the 29th overall pick late in the first round and the first pick of the second round. And they're still here where they are. They have something that I have never seen before that stands out to everybody, but it's just a reminder. It's the difference-making kind of thing. So when we get into Georgia, we'll talk about that. And then there's some stuff just what are they going to do at quarterback as JT Daniels gets back to health with his lat injury. We're going to do instead of Ranking all the teams 1 through 11 or 1 through 12, we're going to do tiers in the rankings this week, which I think will be obviously similar but a little constructive in how we're looking at things right now. We'll talk more about Georgia then. At the end, we're going to kick somebody out. And we're also going to talk about the opening at LSU. Ed Orgeron, this matters, Gojo, because LSU just won the national title a couple years ago. So it's a playoff discussion because it's not a playoff team this year. It's a playoff program, Shahan. And so who they hire matters because you can win quick. You have an expectation of winning. The last three coaches there have all won national titles. So we will talk about who we think should maybe be in consideration for the LSU job. Do you want to rip on LSU real quick here because you've been ripping on them all year and I don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I felt like I saw this, right? I felt like this was a team last year that was five and five that didn't really play even as well as that bad record. And heading into this year, I didn't think that everything was going to magically be fixed. Uh, the funny thing about it is that, you know, Coach O, he, he kind of cleared the deck. He fired both coordinators. He had hired older guys before in Bo Pelini and, uh, and Scott Linehan. This time he went super young. And I think that he probably just gave some guys a little bit more than they were prepared to handle, especially when they were kind of in the, in the mode of having to save his job. You know, that, that first game against UCLA, I know that LSU is kind of the brand name and a lot of people were excited because they have a lot of talent and they've recruited really well and they're a top five talent composite team in America. But like, 
I feel like people jumped overboard with the UCLA stuff because they're like, well, if you can beat LSU, I mean, that's exciting, right? Like this team has not been good for a little while. I mean, really since, uh, since winning the national championship, they haven't been a good team since the national title game. They are nine and eight. Like that's not a team that's competing for the playoff. That's not even a good team. That's not even a, I mean, that's a team that's barely in a bowl game. And remember with the, at least with this season too, right? Like when you're talking about four and three, you're talking about four non-conference games too in in the SEC too. So it's been a rapid fall from grace for LSU and for Coach O. There's some great reporting in the athletic and sports illustrated at ESPN about kind of the end of that era. And I encourage you to go read some of that, but this is a job that kind of manages itself in a lot of ways. The last three coaches that have coached at LSU have all won national titles, Les Miles, Ed Orgeron and Nick Saban. Uh, they haven't had a losing season since 1999. So this is, this is an elite job in college football. It's up there with Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, all those jobs. And so, uh, whichever coach gets this job is immediately going to be a coach that is competing for national championships. It is one of those situations again. I feel like I'm apologizing for stuff this week. I don't like apologizing, <laughs> but sometimes in college football, it's not quite the pros, right? It's not quite the pros. So you don't want to be quite as mean. Sure. I'm sure. mean, but to the players, at least I'd say. But even like in 2019, I mean, I, I have made the case over low these many years that I think a lot of times assistant coaches in college football are over, are overpaid because they're middle managers. And in college football, like in the end, it's about the head coach and the players. And there's if you're at a decent program at all, there's a lot of qualified guys who want to come work there because it's good for their careers. I think 2019 LSU was as propped up by its coordinators as maybe any team in college football history. And we've, we've seen a lot of sort of CEO head coaches, but to have Joe Brady on one side of the ball calling the offense and Dave Aranda defensively getting it done as one of the highest paid defensive coordinators in college football history, and then they leave based on the success, and then it's like, oh, yeah, it was them. And I don't know, you know, they just threw a boatload of money at Aranda and kept getting them to stay and getting them to stay, and everybody knew he was great. That wasn't like a genius hire by LSU. It was like everybody knew he was awesome, and they just paid him the most. And then Joe Brady was a little bit of, I don't know, serendipity. I guess you got to give him a little <laughs> bit of credit for it, right, because they did hire the guy. But – Clearly, Coach O couldn't duplicate that, and those were the two guys who were the brain trust of an LSU team that also, by the way, was just absolutely stocked with NFL talent. So that we got here with Coach O, again, it's not a surprise necessarily that we're here. It's the surprise that he was the head coach of a national championship team. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that, in so many ways, that team is like once in a lifetime, right? Because you mentioned, I mean, they won basically every award, right? They won the best quarterback award. They won the best uh, defensive back award. They won the best, all these awards, right? Like they won everything basically. And, uh, and I think in hindsight, right? Like everybody knew already about Dave Aranda, like you mentioned, everybody knew that he was a good coach. I was never in question. Joe Brady was Edo taking a chance. And it's a chance that seems to have worked out. And on top of that, uh, on top of him obviously being great at LSU, I think that you look to the pros. He's been a really good offensive coordinator in the NFL as a 32 or something year old uh, offensive coach. So like they just happened to, to, you know, run into a guy who was incredible. And Edo deserves all the credit in the world for identifying a nobody because Joe Brady was a nobody. Uh, 
but he's gone and he was like what if scott linehan was the same thing and uh that's uh that's not the case <laughs> you know what the heck with it let's do it now we're this far into the lsu discussion hold on for one second we'll welcome a couple teams to our playoff discussion, maybe. Or maybe we'll welcome nobody. <laughs> we got a couple people, Michigan State, Oklahoma State, Wake Forest, Pitt, that I put out to the tech subscribers, 817-442-6789, if you want to be part of that. And, of course, we'd love you to be part of the Tuesday show. That's only on Apple Podcasts. It's 3 bucks a month. You get four Tuesday shows at $0.75 cents an episode. We dug in hard on Iowa, the idea of playoff pretenders, and is the Big Ten overrated? That was the big chunk of the Tuesday show. But let's just do LSU right now. There is a time, I think, and everybody's been writing, lots of people writing and talking about that the AD at LSU wants to take a big swing. And then you start seeing names like Dabo Sweeney and Jimbo Fisher. And it's like, I don't know why I just ask Saban to come back. So that's great. And LSU, I think, has the resources and the wherewithal and the want to to, to go after guys like that. I do think there are times when a guy on his way up in the backyard is a really good call. And here where I am in Ohio, Ohio State did, did this famously and successfully with Jim Tressel. He wasn't, you know, he was successful at Youngstown State. He was an Ohio guy. He was right here having success. And Andy Geiger, the AD, said, okay, let's just call that guy up to the big leagues. Michigan, in its own way, tried to do that with Brady Hoke, where he was at Ball State. He wasn't at Michigan, but he was a, he was a Michigan guy through and through, coming off Rich Rodriguez. He was desperate for the Michigan job. He'd do anything to get it. He was a longtime Wolverine, and they went that way, and that didn't work. Do you think LSU should go big-time higher? Biggest name, most successful guy on this level that you can throw money at, or there's a guy sitting there in the state that seems like he might be ready. He's not a Louisiana native. He's from Georgia. He went to college in South Carolina. He's coached at Alabama. He's coached at Clemson. He's having success in major college football in the state of Louisiana. Why wouldn't you go to Billy Napier? Because I think you have mentioned him on this podcast before, Shahan, as an up-and-comer. Everybody knows he's an up-and-comer. He's going to get a job. Why wouldn't it be this? Would Would that fan base feel like it's settling if they take Louisiana coach Billy Napier? But... I don't know. If you feel like you're setting, settling tough noogies, let's see what he does in the next couple of years. I think he might be the right guy. I think he definitely might be too, right? Like, I mean, this isn't to nobody. Like you mentioned, uh, you look at the other SEC jobs that have come open the past couple of years. There have been jobs that he declined to even interview for, right? Like he did not want to interview at Tennessee. Uh, he could have had South Carolina if he wanted it. Thank, thank goodness he didn't. I'm not a fan of that South Carolina job. Uh, you know, he probably could have had Auburn if he really pushed for it. He could have had Mississippi State if he pushed for it. And he's already turned that level of job down. And so I think the LSU is the kind of job that obviously he would take. I think that's a, I think that's a, a generally accepted statement. Um, look, Scott Woodward, their athletic director, was the athletic director when Texas A&M took a huge swing and hired Jimbo Fisher, right? So like, that's his MO. He's the, he's the same AD that hired Buzz Williams from Virginia Tech, which was, you know, a huge hire at the time. He hired Kim Mulkey from Baylor as women's basketball coach. Like he is somebody who goes out there and money whips people. That's what he does. So I do think that he's going to make a few calls first. I, I do think he's going to call Dabo. I don't think Dabo's going to have interest. I think that Dabo's got a great thing going at Clemson. And I think that, uh, it, you know, the LSU is a fantastic job is probably sort of, uh, 
across from each other, like LSU is a better job than Clemson. But I think that Dabo situation is better because you, you already have all the clout. You already can tell everybody to shut up, right? Like that's already happened. Um, I think that James Franklin gets a call. I don't know if James Franklin would prefer USC or LSU or if he just would prefer to stay at Penn State. I think he's going to have all those options in front of him. Uh, they will call Jimbo. It sounds like Jimbo is like pretty serious about like, you're going to have to pay me a hundred something million dollars. And you probably don't want to have to do that for, you know, a coach is very good, but like probably not worth throwing a hundred million dollars at, um, you know, so I, I do think that it's, and the other guy that I will mention who has come up a lot that I do think makes a lot of sense is Mel Tucker, the, the head coach at Michigan state. He's very quickly turned Michigan state around. He very quickly turned Colorado around for a little while before taking that Michigan state job. Uh, he has lots of ties to the South. I believe he served. Uh, I believe he coached at LSU under Nick Saban. If I remember right. So I, I have a little, so Mel is from, is from Cleveland and he has had two coaching mentors in his life. Well, he went to Wisconsin and played for Barry Alvarez. And that was a big deal. He actually is a Midwest guy, but as a professional, he's had two coaching mentors, Nick Saban and Jim Trestle. And so he worked for both of them. Uh, he got to know Nick Saban at Michigan state. Then he did coach under Nick Saban at LSU. Uh, he coached under Jim Trestle at Ohio state. Then he went to the NFL. And then he said the only way he ever would have come back to college was to coach for Nick Saban or for Jim Trestle. He came back, coached for Nick Saban at Alabama, then followed Kirby Smart to Georgia and was the defensive coordinator at Georgia. He should have been a head coach before Colorado. He should have gotten that job. He should have gotten that opportunity earlier. He was eminently qualified. Went to Colorado for a year. And I fit like I talked to him when he was at Colorado. Really liked it. I'm talking to him on the phone. He's talking about, look at the mountains. I can see the mountains out my office window. Mountains are lovely out your window. I'm looking at a tree. You got a woodpecker. But Michigan State called and like he had roots at Michigan State, right? So he kind of, I think he did like turn down Michigan State the first time and then he couldn't turn it down. Now he's barely been there. I don't know, Shahan. Sometimes I get sentimentalist about stuff. It's like, well, he's only at Colorado for a year. He's only been at Michigan State for two. Would he really take LSU? But then it's like, well, what's the better job, Michigan State or LSU? You can win a national championship at LSU. I don't think you can actually win one at Michigan State. So I guess if they call, does he have to go? If he's the guy they want, does he have to go or can I be sentimental about a Cleveland guy who might want to take a shot in East Lansing for a couple of years before he jumps? No, and, and I think that there are very good reasons for him to turn down the job, right? Like, I think that with a lot of the candidates that we're going to mention and that we're going to see over the next several days, there's a lot of reasons to not take this job, right? It is a top five job in college football, LSU is. Like, if you're Mel Tucker and you feel like this opportunity will never come around again, then maybe you have to consider it, right? At the same time, I don't know that you have to go into that thinking that, right? Like, same deal with Luke Fickle. I think Luke Fickle will probably get a call as well. Uh, I, I don't know if for him, I mean, obviously we've talked about him being a Midwest guy before, only coaching in the state of Ohio. But, like, you know, LSU's the kind of job that makes you rethink that, right? Like, LSU's that level of job, just kind of you know, even more than USC is. And USC's a fantastic job. So I do think that he's going to have to sit back and think about it. Like you mentioned, three head coaching jobs in four years. I, I, as a person with a with a wife I would not want to go through that I wouldn't want to have to you know call the movers that many times and uh, be living out of boxes again and and know by the way that at LSU it might be a three-year gig and then you're out like you know maybe maybe that's uh that's something that doesn't appeal to him and I think that he could be at Michigan State it's it's year two I don't want to overreact but like 
he could probably be at Michigan State for 10 years if he really wanted to, right? So, Oh, for sure. And and so I, I don't know. I, I am curious, but I do think that that is the kind of call that at least makes somebody like Mel Tucker sit down and think. I do think sometimes, a guy, again, a guy like Mel Tucker, it took him too long to get this shot. He was the interim head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars for a little bit, but he didn't get a – he was a defensive coordinator in the NFL. Then, like we said, came back to college at Bama and Georgia. The idea that he would have three different jobs in four years, it's like it, he was sort of unfairly held back. And so to be like, well, now he's going to be like – to be the head coach at LSU at age 50 is like you're you're – not that you're on track, but that's like a normal <laughs> back. Good thing, right? Yeah, you're back. Sometimes the idea that he might accelerate, well, I don't know. I should have been a head coach when I was 42, not 47. Or I should have been a, gotten a shot when I was 39. And then I could have bided my time and really tried to build up some places before I jump. Well, they didn't, I didn't get that chance until now. So now I've got to jump when I can and jump when I can. Because if you stay at Michigan State, now you're in your mid-50s and now – does a place like LSU even want you? I do think sometimes coaches, the timing of their careers affects how things go. And so maybe he would be at a point where he's like, listen, man, like you said, if I'm not going to look at LSU right now, what what would turn my head? And I'm not, do I think I'm the head coach at Michigan State for the next 10 years? If the answer to yourself is no, I am open to leaving, then why wouldn't you look at LSU? Luke, to me, and James Franklin, I don't know. I think as much as I didn't think USC made sense for Luke Fickle, I almost think USC makes more sense than LSU because of that pressure cooker of in that division, in the SEC, if you're not used to that. And again, Mel was only at LSU for one year, and he was there because Nick Saban, Michigan State guy, went to the South. And by the way, Nick Saban's a Midwest guy. Nick Saban's from West Virginia, went to college in Ohio, started his you – know, was all about the Midwest until he decided – I'm going to jump for a job. He didn't have roots down there. He was at Michigan State. He goes to LSU and everybody finds out, oh, this guy, he's the greatest coach ever. So you can become a Southern guy just by taking a job in the South. Did did we annex West Virginia into the Midwest? Is that what, what happened there? Cole, I think it's Cole. That's all I know. Rust Belt, I don't know. <laughs> close enough, close enough. Yeah, but it is funny, right? Like the two two of the like highest profile coaches right now in college football who are like consummate southerners at this point are Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban, both of whom are from West Virginia, which is kind of a funny deal. But no, I mean I, I think that your point on Mel Tucker's well taken. I mean, he kind of doesn't have the opportunity for a second life. You know what I mean? Because, like, one thing that one guy that I'll point to, and, and like you mentioned, Mel Tucker, for reasons, some of which are probably very dumb, did not get to, did not get an opportunity until now, until he was 47, 48. Uh, you know, Steve Sarkeesian became the head coach at USC in his mid-30s, right? Like, because he was on that Pete Carroll staff. I think it's a very similar situation. Uh, and offensive minds oftentimes get coaching jobs before uh, defensive guys. But, uh, you know, he's somebody who who took over, obviously, as head coach at USC, was able to, like, fail in a big public way, have a whole rehab tour, get NFL coordinator jobs, get Alabama coordinator jobs, and then get another blue blood job. Like, because he was only, like, 40 when he got that first job, he could have a whole second act. Mel Tucker, I, and I I mean, look, Mel Tucker might want to coach till he's 70, right? And, like, I, I, I think that... If he feels like he could get whatever job that he quote unquote really wanted by the time he's 55, like he should still feel fine about that. I mean, I think that sometimes we think too much about like, well, this guy's not going to be here for 20 years when like 
most coaches are there for four years. But uh, but I do think that you at least have to consider it, right? Like, I think that you do have to consider it, see what they can offer. I think that the other thing that Scott Woodward is really good at, their athletic director, is, like, greasing the wheels and, like, being like, hey, if this is what you want, I will make it so. I, I will deal with it. You know, I, I will deal with all the outside stuff because I'm Scott Woodward and I'm, you know, the biggest personality in the room. And so I'm willing to do that for you, right? Like going to Texas A&M for Jimbo Fisher, like he was, he was able to say like, I'll get you any assurances that you want. Like we have the money. We, we have the ability to do these things. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that that would be interesting. Another name that I did hear brought up, which again, similar sort of deal where it's like, you have to sit back and think, I don't, but I don't know. He's Mario Cristobal at Oregon. Right. Like, I think that that would be a name that would be, quote unquote, a name, right, a splash for them. Um, and and so I do think that somebody like that will probably get a phone call and we'll have to sit back and think, right, like which team has a better chance of winning a national championship? It's probably LSU. Which team has a better path to the playoff? It might be Oregon. Who knows? So, like, I think that there's a lot to take in. I do think at the end of it, it might just be that Billy Napier is the right choice. I'm curious if they're going to make it. So let So let's run through this just really quick here at the end. I think I think Cristobal and Tucker are and Fickle maybe are in similar situations where they have really good head coaching jobs. But even like Fickle compared to Tucker, they're about the same age. But Luke Fickle at Cincinnati has been able to establish something. He sort of knows what he can do at Cincinnati. So if he left Cincinnati after this year for any job, I think he would leave knowing, listen, like we did it. We we created a new standard of Cincinnati football. Mel Tucker, if you leave Michigan State after year two, you never get to experience that. You don't know what your peak might have been. Mario Cristobal, you know, hasn't been as at Oregon as long, but he's gotten some kind of feel like, listen, man, we got the program defining win at Ohio State. But would you rather have, if you're LSU, I can understand you shoot for the top tier first and maybe just like Dabo Sweeney's not coming, Jimbo Fisher's not coming. Then maybe you go Tucker, Maybe you check on Ficker and Fickle and Cristobal. Say those guys don't come. Would you rather have Billy Napier or Lane Kiffin? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's a good question. I think that, I think that it kind of depends. It's it's almost a personality thing at that point, you know, because yeah. like because Lane is that dude, right? And like. Obviously, I think the LSU fans, when things were going good, they loved having a personality, right? They loved having Coach O. They loved that everybody was talking about the Bayou and Cajuns and all that, right? Like, everybody loved that. Uh, but, you know, Lane historically also comes with, you know, with some headaches, right? Now, LSU desperately wanted to hire Lane Kiffin as offensive coordinator when Ed O came, right? Like, that was supposed to be the guy. They were going to go after, uh, from some reporting that that I've read and heard, like, that was the guy that that was the guy that Edo said, we're going to come in and we're going to money whip Lane Kiffin and make him leave Alabama and come to us. Now, then he got a head coaching job and that kind of threw everything into whack. But like, that's somebody that they've coveted for a little while. And I think that you see what he's doing at Ole Miss. We'll see kind of how the season ends. I think that's going to play a part in it, right? Because if they finish, if they finish seven and five, then nobody's quite as excited about it. But I do think that he's going to have a chance at the job. I, I do think that he's a call that they probably should make. He, he's, Slightly more of a sure thing, I'd say, than Billy Napier, though I think that Billy Napier long term might be a better option potentially. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting. Though the one other guy that I do want to address because I've seen it floated around and I don't see it at all is Dave Aranda. I, I mean, we, we can do the as the Baylor grad, but like, I think that like he, he just look at the guys across the SEC, right? Like they are guys who are 
primarily recruiters and guys who deal with boosters, right? And and like Dave Aranda, I, I don't know if any of y'all have ever heard him talk. He is one of the quietest coaches that I've ever heard, like ever, right? Like he is in a perfect situation right now to not have to be the face of a program, to kind of get to be the brains of a program instead. I think that a job like USC could make sense for him. I think that a job like Wisconsin would make sense for him. This is not me saying that I think that Dave Aranda is going to coach at Baylor for 50 years, but I just think that this is the kind of job that you are not just the head coach at LSU. You are the governor of Louisiana. And I just don't see that personally. All right. Prediction. Who, who's the next coach of LSU? Ooh, okay. Okay. I'm going to go with Mel Tucker. I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. I think that for Mel Tucker, I mean, this is kind of, I don't want to, I mean, we talked about it a little bit on the Tuesday show. I don't want to say that this is a fluky year because I don't know. I, I think that they are really building something. They've recruited at a really high level. They've developed at a really high level. But at the same time, I think that if he doesn't go this year, you're going to start to lose some of those great offensive players that are really driving this team. And so it becomes a, okay, well, I didn't leave after two years. Maybe I'm looking at five years instead. So, and, and at that point, you don't know if LSU is going to come open again, right? Like that's, that's just, it's that kind of job. So I, I would say right now that my choice would be Mel Tucker. Uh, I would say though that probably the safer choice. And, and honestly, I think the choice in some ways that I would make would be Billy Napier, a guy who has been preparing to be a head coach in the SEC for damn near 10 years at this point. I would make sure if I was LSU that I didn't get to Billy Napier too late. I would have Billy Napier like involved early in the process and, and you can't let your fan base or Billy Napier feel like he's the ninth choice as you, as you check on Dabo Sweeney and Jimbo Fisher and Mario Cristobal and Mel Tucker and Luke Fickle and James Franklin. And then you're like, well, I guess we'll take the guy down the road because the guy down the road's pretty darn good. Seven and seven is first year, 11 and three, 10 and one last year, five and one this year at Louisiana. I think he gets the job. I think maybe it's just a little too hot for some other guys right now. And that Napier, sometimes people always go on the past for an AD because what else do you have to go on? But just because a guy did one thing one time doesn't mean that's how he operates all the time. I well, do think sometimes. Seven things seven times. Like he's been, he's done it a lot. That's true. But the, I do think sometimes it's attractive for ADs to not take the obvious person. And just because he's taken high-profile obvious people, sometimes you want to look like the smartest guy in the room by making the hire that other people wouldn't have made. Because then if it works out, you get a lot of credit. Listen, if you just throw money at Jimbo, it's like, well, anybody can throw money at Jimbo, right? What's the big deal? Are you a genius for that? So I just, okay, sometimes people do things seven times. But just because <laughs> they do it seven times doesn't mean they're going to do it an eighth. Yeah, and and I will say, the, the other guy, and I think the, the situation that's a little comparable to this situation is before Scott Woodward was uh, athletic director at Texas A&M, he was athletic director at the University of Washington. And he was the guy who convinced Chris Peterson to finally leave. So that is, I think, a very similar situation where you've got this great group of five coach who's already been selected and who knows heading forward he can be selective. Uh, you know, and so maybe that's what Billy Napier is. And and I think I legitimately do think that Billy Napier could be the next big thing. Right. Like, I, I do think that he's that level of coach. So I, I would absolutely I, I do absolutely think that it could happen. Like you said, I, I think it's important for both him and for their fans that he's part of the process and seen as a priority early. And I think that Scott Woodward's good enough at like having these conversations under the table and just, you know, sending a text to Jimbo's agent and saying, yeah, in and then 
he says no without actually having gone through a process, you know? So like, I, I think that that's how this is going to work. So, um, I think that Napier would be really successful there. It seems like, uh, if it wasn't Scott Woodward, I think that it's probably a little bit more of a no brainer hire. Um, so, you know, we'll see if he makes that no brainer hire. Coach O's on. I just spent so much time on Coach O's successor here in the college football playoff show. So thank you for talking about who will replace the great Coach O. And I'm happy to join your podcast in the future, Shahad. Good luck, Coach O. All right. We're going to transition very quickly into the thing we're supposed to start the show with. The thing was when Coach O's not getting dismissed, what we normally do. Who gets invited to the playoff discussion? And we'll go right into a team that we just talked about, Michigan State. Michigan State undefeated. We have not had them in the discussion yet. They just came off a game against Indiana where they got outgained. They got outtimed of possession. They turned the ball over more than Indiana, and they somehow still beat Indiana 20 to 15. They're 7 and 0. Shahan, do you think we should be welcoming Michigan State into the teams that we are discussing here on the College Football Playoff Show? If Mel Tucker's good enough for LSU, he's good enough for our playoff discussion. So the thing that I'm hesitant about with them is that they haven't played like even a, an okay team, right? Like their schedule to this point has been terrible. Indiana on the road, Rutgers on the road, Western Kentucky, who's secretly good, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, Nebraska at home that they won by three points at Miami, which is a win that's aging like not well. And then at Northwestern and Northwestern looks like one of the worst teams in college football. Although you did say yesterday that Northwestern might be better in Iowa, which, you know, whatever we can, we can wait for that game. Again, but again, <laughs> in the big 10 West Northwestern can be simultaneously one of the worst teams in college football and as good as Iowa. Yeah. Uh, they're only one of those things just for the record. But, but so with this Michigan state team, I I'm not in a rush. I mean, I feel like I've said this with so many teams the past couple of weeks. I'm not in a rush. I'm willing to wait for that October 30th game against Michigan. And if they, I don't think they have to win the game, but you know, I think that if they keep things close, if they look completely at their level, that says enough, but we haven't seen them play against a team right now. That's like top 40 in the country to this point. And I'm just hesitant to put in a team that hasn't really, just because they've played an easy schedule to this point. So I was just double-checking on how terrible Miami is, and I was like, oh, look at this. They have the little abbreviations. Look, Miami beat Coastal Carolina. Wow, that's a pretty good That's a pretty good win to beat Coastal Carolina. They beat Central Connecticut. It was a different CC. Sorry, Miami. Miami is two and four. But again, we like my Alabama got a boost from beating Miami, and then Michigan State got a boost. Like People were still tricked enough by Miami when Michigan State beat them. The people were like, oh, well, I think Michigan State's for real. It's like, no, Miami is awful. Miami is awful. That job might come open too. I am also hesitant. Michigan State is off this week and then gets Michigan next week. I will tell you, Shahan, the Texters want Michigan State in. The Texters, who are not always, you know, an easy group to persuade, they are 54% yes, 46% no on Michigan State. So you're a no on Michigan State. I'm a no. The tech, the Texters are a yes. And that leaves it to me. And I'm also going to be a no. Just because at some point we can't have every half-decent team in the Big Ten in this discussion play somebody i think it is it is kind of weird how it worked out but we're talking about ohio state we're talking about michigan we're talking about penn state we're talking about iowa i think we can survive 
another week without talking about Michigan State. And guess what? If Michigan State beats Michigan, they will race into this discussion. But for now, we will go against the Texters and keep the Spartans out. Is it just me or is this something that happens like every year where like all the good Big Ten teams don't play each other until November? So like all of them are like top 15. Like this feels like it happens a lot. That makes me want to check on that if there is genius scheduling going on in the Big Ten office to let this it feels like it, topic right? percolate. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is not the first time that I feel like this has come up where it's like, wow, look at all these good Big Ten teams. I, you know, oh, they haven't played each other yet. Oh, that's weird. They're all, <laughs> they all are undefeated to this point. Like it feels like this happens like quite a bit. They just let everybody like beat up on Maryland and Rutgers <laughs> yeah. and Indiana to, to like, it's like, well, everybody's three and zero in conference play. All right, Michigan State, Shahan was not fooled, and he persuaded me. No Michigan State yet. Oklahoma State, 6-0. and we, we talked about this a little bit on the Tuesday pod. Their offense, statistically, and I think in real life, is awful. I like when people are like, well, statistically, they're awful. It's like, yeah, well, it's because you're adding up all the actual <laughs> real-life things that are awful. Their offense is like in the 80s. I am I am reluctant on this. I, it's another team I'm not in a hurry with. I will tell you the textures are yes, seventy one percent want Oklahoma State in our playoff discussion. They are not going to play Oklahoma until the last weekend of the regular season, so we won't get that test for a long time. The textures are yes. I'm a no, so we're going to put Oklahoma State on you, or should we add them or not? I'm going to say yes. What? For real? Oh, now I want to redo. I'm going to redo my Michigan State vote. <laughs> We've got – We have. they've won three straight games against ranked opponents to this point. And I, I understand the hesitation, right? Their three non-conference games were terrible. Awful, awful, awful. But since they've started Big 12 play, they've won games by 11 points, 10 points, and 8 points against ranked opponents, right? Like, it feels like they have turned a corner. And the big catalyst for them turning a corner, too – is that they've gotten a running back named Jalen Warren back from injury. And Jalen Warren has been absurd the past couple of weeks. Uh, he rushed for over, I, I believe he rushed for 200 yards against Texas, uh, complete, 193 against Texas, completely outdueled Bijan Robinson, who obviously is a lot of people's Heisman pick. Like, he gives them enough to keep going. Now, the one thing that I'll say is that we'll figure out really quick if this Oklahoma State team actually can hang because they do get Iowa State this week. And Iowa okay. State, uh, for whatever people want to say about how they started and losing two games against two pretty good teams in Baylor and Iowa, like they're still a really good team and they always start slow and kind of pick things up by the end of the year. So this is, I think, going to be a good match for Oklahoma State. But, you know, they go down against Texas. They storm back and win relatively easily. They, they kind of shut down Baylor's offense. They're the only real team that's completely shut down Baylor's offense. Kansas State was without Skylar Thompson, their, their good quarterback. But still, I mean, they, their running back, uh, Jalen Warren, has done a really, really good job the past couple of weeks. So I do think that they've turned a corner since conference play started. Uh, we'll have to see what the upside is. But, I mean, at this point, they've gone and beaten some pretty good teams. I, I'm not by you know under any assumption that these teams are top ten teams by any means, but uh, but I do think that these are good teams. I think that they're teams that will probably be ranked by the end of the year. So uh, so I do think that Oklahoma State at this point deserves to be in the discussion, but it could be a one week experiment. All right, we're adding Oklahoma State. That brings us to twelve for when we get to our tiers. Let's do a couple more quickly. Pitt. 
Pitt has this weird loss to Western Michigan that we've talked about before, 44-41. Otherwise, I think they might already be in. It's not a great schedule, but they did beat Tennessee. They beat Georgia Tech. They beat Virginia Tech. They get Clemson this week. And then the week following, they get the ultimate test against Miami. <laughs> Just kidding. Miami. The, the playoff maker. The playoff maker, Miami. So listen, they're in the ACC. There's, the rest of their schedule is Clemson, Miami, Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, Syracuse. So, I mean, like, there are limited chances to impress people there. Clemson still would open some eyes. I think this is a huge game for the Pitt program. They have the one weird loss. They have Kenny Pickett, at quarterback, who is looking like he's putting himself in the Heisman conversation right now. Statistically, in the analytics, they're really, really high. Do you want them in? Should we be putting them in ahead of this Clemson game? So you mentioned it. I mean, their schedule to this point has not been good. They beat Virginia Tech 28 to 7, which I actually think is a very impressive win. Uh, but, you know, Georgia Tech, New Hampshire, Tennessee, which is a win that's aging a little better, but still not anything special. UMass in the first game is nothing. And then a loss to Western Michigan. So I do think that that this Clemson game, even though I don't think Clemson is very good still, I, I'm not going to re-enter them into the discussion like he suggested a couple weeks ago. But uh, but I do think that it will be interesting to see how this pit team plays when going against talent, if that makes sense. You know, when going against uh, some great defensive lines, when going against some great, you know, skill position players. I, I think it will be interesting to see how they react. So if they look good, beating Clemson like if they edge the game I don't know if that's enough but if they look good beating Clemson if they win by a touchdown or more I think that I'd be ready to at least have them in the conversation I do think this is a good team and I do think that the Western Michigan game is just kind of a thing that happened um and Western Michigan's not a bad team by any means either like but uh but at the same time I want to wait and see them at least play one team that can hang with them before I feel comfortable saying that they deserve to be part of this discussion we, at the moment, look to be on track for a Wake Forest-Pitt ACC championship game, which which is where, for real, like either of those teams might have its best chance to impress anybody. Of course, NC State's still on the same side with Wake. It probably will be Pitt against the winner of the NC State-Wake Forest game. It's just where the ACC is right now. So you're a no on Pitt for now. I'm a no on Pitt for now. That one loss really our, – our texters, our nice open-minded texters, 97% no on Pitt. <laughs> so they have no interest in that. Sorry, Kenny Pickett. And then I think we can do this quickly. Wake, still not there. 6-0. and The texters say 89% no. They are just going to have to do more. I'm also a no. Are you, like, getting anywhere close to a yes – on wake yet or do you need to see more the problem is they don't play nc state until november 13th their next three games at army versus duke at north carolina then they get uh, nc state on november 13th and clemson november 20th maybe that's their chance would you like wake now are you good I'll wait, but um, I, I do think that that month of November will give them at least a chance to enter our discussion. Like you mentioned, at UNC, North Carolina State, at Clemson, at BC, those are four pretty good teams. Not great teams by any means. <laughs> Might not be a ranked team among the bunch outside of NC State at the time, but uh, I do think that that gives them an opportunity to get in. So I, I do think that as long as Pitt keeps winning too, Wake, if they go undefeated and go 13 and 0, they're at least going to be in the conversation, I think, by the end of the year, right? Like, I, I know that they're Wake, and that's always going to put them, I think, at a little bit of a mental disadvantage. And the fact that Clemson sucks is not good news for them whatsoever. But, uh, but I do think that 
they have a chance to play their way in. I, I think that really the winner potentially of that Wake Forest North Carolina State game could be in our discussion uh, the week after that. All right. So four options, one in Oklahoma State joining the discussion that brings our group to 12, which is the max. But we will be kicking somebody out at the end. But next, we will be ranking them all in tiers. That's coming up on the College Football Playoff Show. In case you missed the last College Football Playoff Show. Do you think all those teams are legit? Or is is Iowa a message about, hey, 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 maybe don't believe in anybody in the Big Ten too much? Maybe I'm overreacting. Am I overreacting? Do I sound like I'm over? I'm on tilt a little bit about Iowa, to be frank. (laughs) I don't think that they're top ten quality teams. I mentioned before, though. Yeah, I expect that Michigan State's going to pick up three losses. I expect that Michigan has a chance to to pick up multiple losses. I think that Ohio State can still lose games. I think Penn State can still lose games. So, I mean, I I think that it might only be maybe one or two teams in the final AP Top 10. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts for exclusive college football playoff show bonus episodes. It's the college football playoff show. Doug and Shahan, thanks to everybody who's trying the Tuesday show. Thank you so much for doing that. Available on Apple Podcasts, you know, in the same kind of range as this show, frankly. But it's it's looking a little more at like an analyzing what happened. This one's a little more of what might happen next. This is where we do the rankings. But again, if you want to be part of that, find us on Apple Podcasts and then you use your thumb and you subscribe for $2.99 a month. And again, the texter is 817-442-6789. Let's do tiers. We got to go a little quickly because we spent a lot of time on Kojo. But so Kirby Smart, if you have a complaint, please forward it to Kojo. He took your time. Tiers. How many tiers for our now 12 playoff teams? How many tiers did you break them into, Shahan? I broke them into four tiers. As did I. As did I. So let's talk about tier one. Who is in your tier one? My tier one is one team. And it is the University of Georgia. I don't think that anyone else at this moment deserves to be in a tier with them. I think they've been the most dominant team in the country. I think they've been the most complete team in the country. There's a reason that uh, they're damn near unanimous number one in the country right now. I, I think that they're in a class of their own right now. Again, this is a snapshot in time right now. But uh, but I do think that Georgia deserves a platform all to its own. I agree with that. And I also have one team in the top tier and it's old Miss. <laughs> uh, I also have Georgia up there. And let's have our Georgia discussion here. When you watch them play, like Kentucky, I thought on Saturday was a good test in terms of like nobody actually thought that Kentucky was going to beat Georgia, but at least they had a little bit of juice, right? And sometimes that's all you can ask for when you're trying to evaluate a team. Is it, is it somebody, is it a team that's at least going to make you work a little bit or, or bring something to the table? And I thought, even though Georgia dominated that game, I, I think it was fair to view Kentucky through that lens. But it is a reminder, I have never seen a collection of interior defensive linemen like Georgia has. Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, and Jalen Carter you talked about Jordan Davis. People are saying he might be as good at his position as any player in college football. Snaps, I think they played 71 defensive snaps against Kentucky. The snaps on Saturday, Jordan Davis 39, Devontae Wyatt 33, Jalen Carter 39. They just rotate those three guys through those spots. 
you cannot do anything up the middle against those guys. And against a team like Georgia that is as quick and tenacious on the edge as they are, this is what I've seen a lot over the years with Ohio State. If you're sort of like an average talent team, you can't go wide on a team that has speed on defense. You have to try to pop them up the middle. Establish the run a little bit and then try to hit them in the middle of the field with some intermediate throws and take a couple shots. But you're not going to – bubble screens and sweeps and that thing are, are not – kind of stuff's not going to work because it's like on the African plains. It's a gazelle being tracked by a pack of, of lions or whatever, right? The three tackles that Georgia puts out there, that eliminates the inside run game because these guys just aren't monsters physically. They're smart. They play with technique. They have a they have a ton of motor for guys that size. That that Wyatt Davis and Carter, that two of those three guys are almost always on the field and fresh. I've never seen anything like it. I have never seen anything like it. And everything about Georgia starts with its defensive tackles. No question. I mean, Chris Rodriguez, the running back at Kentucky, great, great, great player, top ten rusher in the country, came into the game with seven hundred sixty eight rushing yards. Hit seven carries for seven yards against Georgia. Like, it just did not work. And this is not the first time that Georgia has done this to, to that kind of team, right? Like, Georgia's allowing fewer than seven points per game right now, which is just just crazy. I mean, back-to-back shutouts against Vanderbilt and, you know, Vanderbilt, whatever. But against Arkansas, too, right? Like, to, to allow zero points to Arkansas is pretty crazy. Allow only 10 points to Auburn, 13 to Kentucky, only because they score a late touchdown that's completely meaningless to to ruin my, my cover pick, of course. Uh, but, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But, uh, no, I mean, this team has been just so dominant on the defensive side of the ball they they really do hold you underwater and you mentioned i mean it's their depth more than anything else that's that's why for me i can't get into the like the heisman conversation with jordan davis it's because like they have so many guys that they can throw at you and that's their strength that's what they do better than anybody else that they have you know 20 guys that basically play major snaps for them on the defensive side of the ball alone now offensively They've been really good. Uh, even though JT Daniels has been out for a lot of the season, Stetson Bennett has stepped in. And having a weapon like Brock Bowers has been a big deal for them. Brock Bowers has probably been their best offensive player to this point. They run the ball at a high level. But that that would be the one piece that I want to see a little bit more consistently is I do want to see them be dynamic on the offensive side of the ball a little bit. But their defense might be good enough that it doesn't matter as long as they are consistent on the offensive side of the ball. They are, and they're so sound play to play defensively that you look, they are as a team, they are 33rd in the nation in tackles for loss. Sometimes you watch them and it feels like, well, every play is a tackle for loss. What are you (laughs) talking about? How can they be 33rd? They don't have a player in the top 100 in the nation in tackles for loss. Adam Anderson leads them with 4.5, but they have nine guys with at least two. Like the point about their depth in against Kentucky. They played like 17 guys played at least 19 snaps, but they were missing Christopher Smith, one of their main DBs, and they were missing uh, who got hurt in the, in the Auburn game and then didn't play. And then Amir Speed, another one of their top corners, has not played the last two weeks. So they do probably go – I think when where they are right now, they probably go seven D linemen, five linebackers, and seven DBs that they believe in, and they rotate with real belief. And let's keep in mind – Jalen Kimber, who people thought was going to be one of their top corners, out for the year with a shoulder injury. And Tyke Smith, who's a guy that in the beginning of the year when we said who's every team's best defensive player, he's the guy you picked to transfer from West Virginia. 
He had not played until the Auburn game, and he tore his ACL in practice last week. Another DB, he's out for the year. So they have suffered some injuries here, and it it almost doesn't matter. Of course it does matter. They have a guy named Dan Jackson, who's a former walk-on, who played all 71 snaps last week in the secondary. But they have so many linebackers who run to the ball. There was a sequence where one of the defensive tackles early in the game blew up a, a run against Kentucky, and then... They, you know, they throw a swing pass to the edge and Quay Walker, one of their linebackers is there. And it's just like, there's no, there's no inside. There's no outside. Nicobe Dean and Nolan Smith and Adam Anderson and uh, Channing Tindall, all these guys, the way they run to the ball, I guess, I think you have to throw over this defense, right? It still is a defense that saw its top two corners from last year, go to the NFL draft that is missing. Kimber that has speed has missed some time, but then they put in Kaylee Ringo, who's a second year guy, who's a five-star recruit who played every single snap last week. But I think that's what you have to do, which is why if you're going to talk Oklahoma, if you're going to talk Ohio state with those receivers, if you're going to talk Jamison Williams, in Alabama, trying to get down the field, right? Is that that's the only hope because anything in front of the defensive line, they're going to eat it. And anything that the linebackers can run to, they're going to run to. You've got to go over all of them and either hit some fat slants on the move or some deep balls. Because I just don't think you can hit anything short and try to move the ball consistently on this defense because they're going to track you down. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's no question about it. I mean, they are <laughs> they're as fearsome a team as as there is in college football. And I think the other thing too, and you know, just with this, like I feel like. Georgia's one of the few teams that I feel like really leverages having so much more talent. You know, we mentioned all the rotating and stuff, right? But like, they are willing to change things up. They're willing to try different looks. They've got different packages for guys. So that's the other part of this too, right? Is that if you go over the top, maybe they switch out to some other guys. Maybe they try some different DBs. Maybe they play a little bit more off the ball. Like, I just think that this team is built to beat you in so many ways. And like, it's such a testament to what Kirby Smart has built there that one, they have this much talent on the defensive side of the ball to where they can just replace people where guys can go out. I mean, this is where depth shows up. This is where recruiting matters. This is where stars show up. Uh, but, but, you know, I think it's also just a real testament to the way that he's developed those players, the way that he's identified those players, right? Cause I, I think that a lot of coaches just chase stars in some cases, but I think that, you know, Georgia's done a good job of really finding guys who fit their system. So it, it's just, it's fearsome. I, I don't know another word to call it other than just fearsome. I do. Th- the, the, we've talked a lot about sort of the experience with some of the maybe lesser talented teams this year. We talked about it a lot with Iowa state in the preseason and how some of the super seniors and keeping guys around and maybe guys who stayed for 2021 because of the pandemic season, they don't have a ton of like super seniors at Georgia, but they have guys who I think stayed when maybe they wouldn't have stayed otherwise. I just ran through quickly like their top 19 guys on defense. It's three guys from the 2017 class, which is – that's a long time. That's 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. That's, that's five years. That's surprising in a place like Georgia. But the 2018 class, again, their top 19 guys, it's seven guys from the 2018 recruiting class who are fourth-year guys now and seven guys from the 2019 recruiting class who are fourth-year guys now. And it's only two guys from the 2020 class, Ringo and then Jalen Carter on the defensive line who are 2020 guys. Because sometimes 
you know, sometimes at a great program when you're getting five stars, you've got a bunch of second-year guys who are contributing in a big way. The heart of this defense is third-year guys and fourth-year guys. So they aren't just fast and explosive and dynamic. They are smart and technique sound and have an awareness of how everything works together. And I think it's a little bit of what we're seeing from the pandemic year. It's a, we're seeing it in a different way than we might see it at Iowa State or Cincinnati, but I think it is having an effect. And when you think about that 2018 Georgia recruiting class, number one in the nation, they did lose Aziz Ojolari, edge rusher, second-round pick last year. They did lose Tyson Campbell from that class, first-round pick at corner. Justin Fields was the best player in that class before he transferred. But that is this is a fourth-year group. It was the number one recruiting class in the country. The heart of that class is still here in year four, and it is driving. It is absolutely driving what Georgia is doing. And a reminder, yes, places like Georgia have five stars all over the place. Jordan Davis, number 99, this guy that nobody's ever seen before, number 424 player in the country, was a six foot six, 330-pound project in that class of 2018, and they have turned him into one of the most dominant defensive players in college football. I don't like, again, the Heisman discussion with them. PFF draft rankings, Jordan Davis is the number one defensive tackle. Devontae White's number four defensive tackle. Among edge rushers, Adam Anderson, who also is in the discussion as their best defensive player, number five edge rusher. Linebackers, Nicobe Dean, number two linebacker. Lewis Seen at safety, number eight safety for them. But again, it's not, it's not Kayvon Thibodeau. It's not uh, Derek Stingley Jr. It's not, it's not Kyle Hamilton. It is 20 really good guys, but I'm not even sure in the end. They'll have a couple All-Americans, Shahan, but it's the, it's the group. It's like a swarm of bees. It's not one bee sting. Well, that hurt. If it's 20 and they keep stinging you, then your face swells up like in the Hunger Games. <laughs> like, like those robot bees. Those scare me. It's just we keep – but I just I – want, I want to make sure that we are giving credit to the depth and the breadth of the town. Because it's not like it's only breadth and it's not like it's, you know, like it's it's deep and it's wide. And so that is it is remarkable and it's going to be very difficult for anybody to score on them. <laughs> so thinking back to that class, you mentioned Jordan Davis, the number 424 player. They took three non blue chips uh, in in the class, at least guys who, who signed and made it to campus. Uh, Jordan Davis. Their punter, Jake Camarda, and then an offensive tackle. He was one of three non-blue chips that they took. And I don't know, man. Whatever they're feeding guys over there, it's not fair. It's it's not fair. But like you said, it's it's a swarm of bees more than anything else. I think that's a pretty apt metaphor for what this defense is and what this roster is in a lot of ways. And and like I I understand the frustration, right, with the Heisman thing, because because you want to be like, oh well. This great team in college football, this sort of face of the sport right now, uh, well, they should be rewarded with the Heisman, but like, there really just isn't a guy because of the way that they play, right? Like, I mean, Zamir White, they rotate running backs too much for him to really have a chance. Like, I feel like maybe you can make like a, a Mackey award case for Brock Bowers, but like Heisman case, I don't know about that, right? Like, that's probably the the like I don't want to call it a downside because it's actually a tremendous compliment. But like the one downside of this team is that they don't have a face, right? They don't have a guy. They don't have somebody that they're boosting up, and and that's why there's I think kind of this rush to be like, well, maybe Jordan Davis because like they, they, people just kind of want a guy to identify with. But like the thing that is great about this team is that it's going to look back like 2013 Florida State, where it's like, oh, 
every player on this team is in the NFL right now. Like literally every single player, especially on the defense. I mean, heck, I think every single player on the defense will get drafted into the NFL, which is crazy. I remember I voted for Manti Teow for first place on my Heisman ballot. How'd that go? I hope nobody, please, everyone on the Georgia defense, make sure the people you're talking to online actually <laughs> exist. The, so because, but my case was he's the best player on the best unit that is making a team a national title contender. And so I'm open to that. Hey, who's the best player on your best unit that makes you who you are? Except I don't know who that is for Georgia. Is it N'Kobe Dean? Is it Adam Anderson? Is it Jordan Davis? Is it Jalen Carter? Like, that's the thing. They can't even find their Manti Teo because they have five of them. It's not that they have none of those. It's that they have five of them. And so it's going to be hard. They're going to work out the quarterback thing. Again, JT Daniels, the USC transfer has been dealing with the lat issue. He's coming back. Stetson Bennett has sort of manned the ship. In the meantime, he's not the answer long term. They're still waiting to get some of the receivers back, but they have two tight ends with with Washington and with Brock Bowers. The the receivers who have filled in have been fine. They have three running backs. The offense is still going to get better, and I just I just think it's going to be hard to stop these guys. All right, we're going to have to run through the rest of the tiers pretty quickly, but we wanted to give a nice hearty discussion to the Georgia Bulldogs. How many teams do you have in your tier two? I have five. I have three. Who are your three? My three are Cincinnati, Oklahoma, and Alabama. Okay. And uh, and again, when I did this, this was not like committee thinking. This was like talent level of play thinking because we sort of took off our committee hats for a moment. I have those three teams plus Ohio State and Penn State. And that is Penn State with Sean Clifford. Fair. So without without Sean Clifford, then like they're they're not there. But I... You know, he took a shot in the chest, um, got sacked in that Iowa game, rested last week. We, we don't know. It maybe won't be back this week. If he's not back for the Ohio State game, then Penn State just does, doesn't have a chance. With him, I think they have a chance because I think they have enough other stuff going on. To me, these, this tier is everybody who would legitimately have a chance to beat Georgia. And I do think um, Oklahoma, when its offense is right, which is look, it looks – is getting right Cincinnati across the board with Desmond Ritter. And we kind of talked about that before, but I think Ohio state, I do think with the way CJ Stroud's played with the receivers they have with Trayvon Henderson at running back, I think their offense is equipped to go at this Georgia defense, not beat it necessarily, but go at it. Bama is Bama. And then again, Penn state to me, it's the defensive offensive combination. We agree on three of them. How close were you to put, were you to putting Ohio State or Penn State at that level? I was pretty close to putting Ohio State. The, the big thing to me is still, I can't get out of my head that Ohio State's played one halfway decent team in America this year and lost, right? Like the only time that they played a team that even like is a passable football team, they lost, right? Like, and may, maybe Travion Henderson coming in is just the difference and they're much better now, but like, I need to wait and see it. I, I'm in wait and see mode with this team because I just beating Maryland, beating Rutgers, beating Akron and struggling against Tulsa. That's, that's just not doing it for me. Right. Like I know what this team can do against bad teams. I want to see if they can still do it against good teams because the one time they had the opportunity, they didn't do it. Uh, Penn state. I, I don't want to group them in with the haven't played anybody group. Right. Because I don't think that that's accurate, but like Auburn's fine and they beat them fine. 
And and yes, they would have beaten Iowa. And I think that from a committee perspective, right, like that should put them in that top group. But I think that I think that we are kind of in agreement that, you know, I was maybe more of like a a number 10 type team than maybe like a number two type team. So like I I I want to see Penn State have to play against explosive talent. They're going to get that opportunity against Ohio State. Whichever team wins Penn State, Ohio State easily, obviously, is going to jump into that second group, if not have a chance for that first group. But I, I think I'm just waiting to see like a really impressive performance from Penn State uh, and, and Ohio State, for that matter, against a team that I feel halfway good about. I think, I mean, there are legitimate reasons to believe that Ohio State is a significantly better team than the one that lost to Oregon. But you have to, the idea of waiting to confirm it with a performance against a, a team with a little bit more of a pulse. Indiana has a pretty good defense. They have a couple individually good defensive players. Taiwan Mullen in their secondary, who's been out, seems like he might play on Saturday when Ohio State goes to Indiana in prime time. Micah McFadden, one of the better uh, linebackers in the country. I think Indiana's defense, listen, offensively, Indiana's not going to do anything. But I think Indiana's defense might be good enough to get a little deeper read on the Ohio State offense and how, particularly C.J. Stroud. We know the receivers and Trayvon Henderson are good. We know the offensive line is good. But we do need, like, C.J. Stroud's looked really good the last couple weeks, but it was Rutgers in Maryland. I think think that's worth getting that read. I did want to get to a couple texts or questions in this mix here as we're talking about tiers. Again, if you want to be a subscriber and ask some questions for our show, you can join the tech subscription for a dollar a month at 817-442-6789. Brian asked, are we sure the SEC is an automatic two-bid conference this year? That that we had talked a lot about that. We have Georgia in a tier by itself, Bama as one of the teams in tier two. But I do think... If things go as expected and then Bama loses to Georgia in the SEC title game, I I think they're one bid, right? I mean, I don't know how you make a case for two loss Bama. Or then are you trying to make a case for like two loss Texas A&M if they run the no, table? No. Are you trying to make a case for maybe one loss Ole Miss who lost to Bama but hasn't beat anybody else? Like, I don't think there is a case if Bama doesn't beat Georgia in the SEC title game. No, that's the that's the only path, right? That's the only path. And it's the same deal with the Big Ten right now, right? If Iowa goes and beats Ohio State or Penn State in the Big Ten championship game and the other team only has one loss, which, I mean, I guess Penn State at this point couldn't do that. It would have to be Ohio State. And I guess I guess Ohio State couldn't do that at this point since they already have a loss. So, like, I think that the, the chance of there being two teams from one conference, either the Big Ten or the SEC, is limited at this point because of just the way things have gone. That was actually one of the reasons for me, just as somebody who's watching the playoff and is a fan of the process, like that's what one reason to me why Texas A&M beating Alabama was so exciting because I think it did mean that, oh, what we thought might happen. Because if Alabama goes and they're undefeated playing against undefeated Georgia in the SEC title game, that game does not matter. Right. That that game is not it, it's nothing. Right. Like it's just for seeding. It's just for seeding. And so now it, it is legitimately a game that if Alabama loses, they're not going to make the playoff. And the other thing, too, is that if Alabama goes and houses Georgia, like Georgia's probably still going to make it. But like it, it's going to they're going to be a four seed or something. Right. Like it's it's going to be, I think, more on the edge, especially if we have a couple undefeated coming down the pipe. So I, I do think that uh, I would by no means pencil in the SEC as a two-bit league. I would by no means pencil in the Big Ten, which a couple weeks ago it looked like we might be looking at a situation where we have two SEC, two Big Ten as the entire playoff. It looked like that was something that potentially could have happened. But uh, now I think, 
Oklahoma's going to be in the mix. I think Cincinnati's going to be in the mix. Uh, I, I think that there's several teams from the Big Ten and from uh, from uh, the Big 12 that will potentially have a chance to push their way in. Not to mention if Oregon can still finish undefeated, they still make, I, I think, will still pretty easily make it. I will quibble with that idea. I think Georgia is, I think almost everybody in the country would have the tiers the way that we have them right now. I, I don't know who would make a case that there's another team in the same tier as Georgia. I think if Alabama beats Georgia in the SEC title game, I think Alabama's the one seed and Georgia's the two sure. seed. Sure. No, I mean, I, and that, fair. and that, and that, then it's like Big Ten champ, Big 12 champ, Pac 12 champ, Cincinnati fighting to be the three and the four seed. Um, a couple other texture things I wanted to get to. This is Josh sort of asking a doomsday question in regards to Ohio State. If things work out like this, let's say Oklahoma, this is his scenario. Say Oklahoma runs the table. They're 13 and 0 in the Big 12 champ. They've righted the ship. Say Oregon wins out. They're 12 and 1 as the Pac 12 champ. They've righted the ship, whether it's a new quarterback or not. But Joe Moorhead's back. Their defense gets healthier. And then we have Bama beating Georgia. Are those the four teams in? And then, like, for instance, any Big 10 champ would be out unless it's an undefeated Big Ten champ. But let's say it's not an undefeated Big Ten champ because at this point the only team that could be an undefeated Big Ten champ is is going to be the Michigan-Michigan State winner, and I don't know that they'll run the table. Would the Big Ten champ be in? I still think the Big Ten champ might be in because of the quality and the number of wins, but you think maybe not. Well, the thing is, right, if it's Ohio State, because I think that this is specifically the question. If it is Ohio State, like – how do you reconcile with the fact that Oregon came in and pretty convincingly won on your home field? Like we can make the argument that, oh, well, this is, this is a different Ohio State team. This is a different Oregon team. But like, then I think we get into like an existential question of like, why bother playing games then? What, if we're just going to kind of put in what we think in the first place, why bother Oregon? You know, why would Oregon bother going on the road and playing Ohio State if it's literally not going to matter? So I, I feel like there's just not a great argument. And, and I don't think of this scenario is going to happen i think that oregon is very likely to lose another game but like if you're gonna go on the road and beat the big 10 champion convincingly i i, I don't know what, what's the point of playing that so, game if it doesn't matter so we've had some of that discussion so let's have this discussion is 13 and 0 oklahoma definitely in over 12 and 1 ohio state i have said they're not gonna leave out an undefeated power five champ for a non-power five but this is not yet a Cincinnati discussion. This is would the Big Ten champ get in? If Oklahoma, which saw its struggles, but they've if they've righted the ship, but listen, who's their best win? Where Ohio State, if Ohio State has beaten Penn State, Michigan State, Michigan, and Iowa in the Big Ten championship game, which legitimately might be four wins that would be better than any single Oklahoma win, maybe you throw Oklahoma State in there. I don't know. Would that be enough to, to say, listen, they're a different team than the Oregon loss. They've shown that. Look at all these quality wins. And Oklahoma, I'm sorry, you're undefeated, but we're not that impressed. Is that possible? I think it's possible, but I think that the thing to take into account with all of this is that, you know, one thing is right that we've talked about before is that the committee does week to week. They start over, right? They, they start over and reseed these teams. So a win over... Uh, you know, a win over number seven Penn State or whatever, right? Like that might end up being a win over number 21 Penn State at some point, depending on how the season finishes out, right? Like there's there's a lot of losses left in the Big, tw uh, in the big 10 that are going to happen. And so 
And, and actually, even even with Iowa, right? Like Iowa, the fact that they went and lost that game against Purdue and probably pushed themselves out of the top five discussion permanently, that's really bad news, I think. Not bad news, but I, I think that that's a damper on the Big Ten because it does mean that it's an unforced error and it does potentially get rid of a, a potential quality win. So like, I, I just would have a hard time. I mean, I know, again, like you mentioned, if, if Ohio State goes through and they're tremendously dominant against Penn State and Michigan and Michigan State and like all those teams managed to to somehow all finish top 15 like it's it's a conversation I think that needs to be had but like still losing to to Oregon right like that's that's not going to be a win that I think or that's not going to be a loss that I think ages super well and and I don't think is a loss that's aged super well so it's a conversation I think to be had but like short of Ohio State burning through conference play and all those teams kind of figuring out a way to all stay top 15, it, it would be hard for me to see it. Because again, like if you win all the games in front of you, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do. But you're saying the Ohio State loss to Oregon might not age that well. I do think Ohio State might be in a decent spot from this. They would lose a head-to-head with Oregon. And Trey, we see your question here in the tech subscription asking, any chance Oregon gets in ahead of Ohio State if they both finish with one loss. So here's the thing. If Oregon doesn't lose again, I think Oregon probably would get in ahead of Ohio State, but then Ohio State would be like, our only loss is to a playoff team, and we have four other top 12 wins. What do you want us to do? Show me where Oklahoma lost to a playoff team. Show me where Oklahoma beat a playoff team. Show me where Oklahoma beat anybody who's in the playoff discussion Ohio State beat Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Iowa. So, like, okay, so our punishment is we lost in week two to a playoff team and we're dead? Because you know who else might have lost to a playoff team? Georgia might have lost Alabama and lost to a playoff team. So I do think so either, like, in the worst-case scenario, I think, for Ohio State fans, it's like, man, you lose a head-to-head with Oregon. But if that's the case, you're losing a head-to-head with a playoff team, you then might win the other head-to-head. Because I think in the end for Ohio State, right, Ohio State would be in the mix. If you're if you're given two to the SEC and there's only one way, as you covered, Jahan, where you give two to the SEC, even if you give two to the SEC, Ohio State as a Big Ten champ is fighting for one of the two spots. If Oregon takes one, it almost helps their candidacy for the other. If Oregon doesn't take one, then Ohio State might just take that one. So I do think as – and the other thing is, and I've done this as much as anybody in the playoff era. The what if everybody wins out scenario (laughs) and nobody when you have seven teams in the mix in week eight, what if everybody wins out? It never happens. So there's also a part of that. We don't need to spend too much conversation on. Although a couple years ago, I did tell Ohio State fans, don't worry. Notre Dame's going to lose. Notre Dame's going to lose. Notre Dame's going to lose. And then Notre Dame never (laughs) lost and Ohio State missed the playoff. And I was like, what? I just was playing the I assume. No, and and I will say, I, I do think at that point. We do end up in at least some conversation of looking just at the quality of the teams, right? Like where it because it isn't just about resume, right? Where like if Ohio State ekes by against those top fifteen teams and Oklahoma's dominant in both games against Oklahoma State and Oklahoma State wins the rest of their games, like maybe that's just a situation, right? Where where like they're just like, we think Oklahoma's better, where you can have that conversation. Um, you know, I, I think that that will be something that will probably happen. And, and same sort of deal, because like, 
it's I mean, I think it's just hard for me right now to conceptualize the idea of Oregon winning out, right? Like Oregon looks so bad right now. That that's that's a big thing, right? Like Oregon looks so bad right now. And it is unbelievable to me that what I think Ohio State might be lost to that team. It's it's so hard for me to comprehend. And so that's why for me, I'm still tapping the the brakes in Ohio State. Now they've changed uh defensive play callers at this point. They've unleashed Travion Henderson. A lot's changed since that game. But like that is like it's like PTSD at this point to be like, that's, you lost to that? I, you're, you're the best team in this conference and you lost to that? Like it, it is just hard for me to comprehend without, and we have to mention without several of Oregon's best players actually playing in that football game. It, it is, I don't know. I, I still have PTSD from that game. Because the return of Kayvon Thibodeau certainly mattered for them against Cal last week, but Kayvon Thibodeau didn't play against Ohio State. But I do think the thing with Oregon is Oregon is in bad shape right now. I do think they have a chance to get significantly better with Joe Moorhead back if they maybe make a switch at quarterback, if they figure out if Kayvon Thibodeau starts carrying the defense. You, I think there's a formula for it. We said we'd talk about Cincinnati. We have not talked about Cincinnati very much. We will owe Cincinnati a deeper conversation next week. I want to say this about Cincinnati being in Tier 2. I think they almost have gone past the point of being a non-Power 5 team, whatever that means. Like, I just don't think there's any point at almost in using that designation when we're trying to figure out who anybody in the ACC is going to beat this year. We're trying to figure out anybody else that Oregon's going to beat. I know it turned out Indiana's not that good. Notre Dame, I think, is a solid team, and they are, like, blowing people off the field otherwise. I just think they're in the mix. I think they are, and especially in a year where, you know, there's a lot of chaos, I think they are in the mix almost as much as anybody. I think they have kind of – we've said they're going to get a little less sexy as you get further away from the Notre Dame win – I, I almost question whether that's true because I think they are who they are. And I think everybody acknowledges they're real. And I think maybe people won't quite be as much be like, oh, well, they're just playing the the American schedule now. No big deal. It might just be like they're a really good team and lots of really good teams play crappy opponents week to week. Do you think that maybe they've reached that threshold? You know, one thing that I will mention, right, is that uh, ESPN has a metric called strength of record, which is the probability that an average top 25 team would have the same record versus the same schedule. And they're number seven right now. And that puts them one spot behind Bama. So like what that means is that they have played a schedule that most teams in the top 25 would not have beaten, right? Like that they've been completely dominant and all this sort of stuff. The other thing, and I, I could not find, I saw this stat on Twitter the other day and I, and I could not uh, re- recapture it. Uh, they had uh, some. I think that it was ESPN also had a ranking of basically, basically how much has this team outscored their schedule versus what an average top five team would outscore. And Cincinnati was like second in that metric. They were they were one of the few teams that was significantly above zero in that metric. Even even some teams that are in the playoff conversation were more like zero or or slight negative because top five is is a big uh, a big ask, obviously. So like they are beating teams by a lot, and that's what they have to do as as Cincinnati, right? As a team that's not going to play, you know, SMU is another ranked team on the schedule, but that'll probably be it for them. Um, you know, they need to beat teams convincingly, and that's the biggest thing that you say is that outside of Georgia. 
like Cincinnati's the one team in America that's just gone in and taken care of business every single game. They have not played a game that's been within single digits. Uh, their closest game was that win on the road at Notre Dame, which was still an 11 point win. And Notre Dame, for however flawed we think that they might be, Notre Dame at this point still is five and one. They've managed to take care of business other than that. So like, Cincinnati's good (laughs) like I I know that we've had this discussion over and over again on this podcast but I do think that Cincinnati uh, just based on the quality of what they're doing down to down play to play game to game I I think certainly deserves to be in this discussion but we'll also have to wait and see when we get to the committee ranking time whether they agree two weeks until the committee rankings come out but neither of us hesitated to have Cincinnati in tier two no hesitation at all not even a discussion when we come back We will finish up our tiers and then kick somebody out of the playoff discussion next on the College Football Playoff Show. The College Football Playoff Show, where the playoff never ends. All right, so my tier two had five teams. Your tier two had three teams. How many teams are in your tier three? My tier three is five teams. And my tier three is three (laughs) teams. So my, my three teams are Oregon, Michigan, and Old Miss. You're still trying to pencil Ole Miss into this thing? Oh, man. They won in a shower of golf balls. They persevered. You cannot shake the fighting Kiffins. <laughs> I think that I think that offense would give multiple teams trouble. They have a top five, top seven offense. And I think the thing they do best, again, they're imbalanced probably. But I think the thing they do best with the tempo and their aggressiveness and a great quarterback is probably better than like anything that Michigan does, anything that Oregon does. Michigan and Oregon might be more balanced teams, but I didn't have a problem putting Old Miss here. So who are the five teams in your tier three? We'll just go ahead and call this the uh, the Big Ten Memorial tier because it's four Big Ten teams in Oregon. <laughs> I, I, with all these teams, like we kind of talked about all episode, I'm waiting for them to have to play somebody, right? Like Penn State and I was the one group that's played somebody and I was also lost to Purdue. But, uh, but Ohio State, Penn State, Iowa, Michigan, and then also Oregon. I think that they're right there for me. And the thing is, too, a lot of these teams are going to play each other, and whoever wins those games is going to move up easily, right? Like, no question about it. Yes. Um, Ohio State is going to play Penn State. They're going to play Michigan. Uh, you know, and, and the other thing, too, right, is that Oregon has a path to get things back under control and to get themselves back in the discussion. Right now, the question for me is just that I think that they're playing poorly, right? Like, this isn't about resume. This isn't about anything else. It's about the fact that I look and watch them play and look at the numbers and see the stats, and they are not a good football team right now. Uh, but but right now, I, basically, I'd consider, I'd consider Tier 1 the, like, championship favorite. Tier 2 is the maybe could compete with Tier 1. Tier 3 is the wait-and-see tier. The teams that I think can potentially go and compete with a team like Georgia or teams in that second group. But I just want to wait and see whether they're actually going to do it. Would you, I would maybe dispute the idea that, so in two weeks we're going to get Ohio state, Penn state, and we're going to get Michigan, Michigan state on the same day. I don't necessarily know that I would move the Michigan, Michigan state winner into tier two for sure. Maybe, but not for sure. Uh, But I, I agree the Ohio state, Penn state winner would be there. So then tier four for me. And again, if you want to see somebody bail on a team, Go listen to the Tuesday show on Apple Podcasts and watch me bail on Iowa. <laughs> My tier four teams are Iowa, Kentucky, and Oklahoma State. Because again, as good as Iowa's defense is, when they faced a playmaker like David Bell, they couldn't really cover him. And as you mentioned, they had some injuries in the secondary. Like I think Ole Miss offensively would give Iowa trouble. 
right? So that, when I'm thinking about that matchup, that's why I have Iowa in tier four with Kentucky and Oklahoma State. Who's in your tier four? So I've got uh, I've got Kentucky. I've got Oklahoma State. Uh, Oklahoma State obviously needs to play its way up even more. And I've got Ole Miss. Uh, the thing that I'll mention is that if you're really excited about that Ole Miss offense, you're going to love who scored more points against Tennessee than Ole Miss, which would be the Pitt Panthers. Oh, so then just put Pitt in tier three then too. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I don't want – but, but Pitt, so okay, I'll say I will accept. I'll accept Pitt is as good as Ole Miss if we agree that both Pitt and Ole Miss are better than Iowa. <laughs> that I that I can do. That I can. I mean, do. I, I, um, I do think that these are two like pretty comparable teams, right? Like that's the thing, and that, that's why for me, like I'm okay having Ole Miss around, but like Ole Miss, you know, their their big win right now is against Arkansas, and Arkansas is kind of falling off a cliff right now after that game. They they went and lost to Auburn pretty bad. Uh, and then Ole Miss goes and plays Tennessee within five points. And, like, we're still kind of going on, like, well, but look at how they played Tulane. Look at that. Like, I, I just feel like we're still almost in that in that mode right now. Uh, you know, because Arkansas was a nice story. It looks like that story is over. So I, I just. Because Ole Miss ended it. We might We might just have to say when we bring up Ole Miss. Which is really, really quite at the edge of the playoff conversation. Agree <laughs> really to disagree because we're just dis- really not. we're just disagreeing about the same things. Uh, but also, maybe we should get ready. You want Ole Miss out? Maybe you should make a push to kick Ole Miss out of the playoff discussion. We're going to kick somebody out. I want to do these very quickly. We had some good other uh, tech subscriber answers. I asked, which is more likely to win the national championship, Georgia or the field? Mm-hmm. Right. Shahan, what what percent of the vote do you think the Texers gave to Georgia? I would take Georgia instead of the field for the national championship. I'm going to guess like 60%. Only 26. Really? Would you take Georgia or the field right now? Uh, so so we obviously have to mention Georgia's not won a national title since 1980. They, they are, you know, for all intents and purposes, an Atlanta sports team that's going to manage to break everybody's hearts. I would say right now... I would narrowly like 51% lean Georgia over the field. But I mean, it's more because like, I know that it's the field, but I just don't know exactly which team it is that's going to come up and beat Georgia. Yeah. I think I would take Georgia right now too. Like we, we both had Georgia as the number one seed and not the national champion. So like the season is playing out as we <laughs> thought, but I think what Georgia Tell is I doing state that. is, is well, I meant the Georgia part. That was unnecessary. That was just a, a swipe out of nowhere. Again, I, I'm so I'm so like I feel so smart for thinking that Alabama and Clemson would both miss the playoff, which really might happen. And I don't know that there's many people in the country who had them both out, except that I subbed in <laughs> Iowa State in one of the spots, which makes me feel less smart. But I do think Georgia, the way its defense is playing, and with the potential I still think is out there with the offense, Georgia is dissuading me more and more from the notion of like, hey, I bet you they're going to have an awesome regular season and choke in the playoff, right? I think I don't think this defense like can choke. I think it's harder for a defense to choke. A quarterback can get nervous. A receiver can drop a ball, whatever. But a, when you go 20 deep on defense, you kind of are who you are. And then who can break that defense? Maybe it's Oklahoma. Maybe it's Ohio State. Maybe it's Alabama. I don't know. But they are making me more confident in their playoff chances by the way they're playing in the regular season. I did ask a specific Cincinnati question 
Do you think number two Cincinnati could beat number one Georgia? These were the choices I gave Shahan. A good chance. I think they're almost equal. Some chance Georgia is better, but Cincinnati is for real. A small chance Cincinnati could win with the perfect game. Or no way Georgia would blow out Cincinnati. What do you think won? Good chance, some chance, small chance, no chance. I'm hoping that our listeners enjoy the podcast and listen to what we're saying. And I would probably go with the second answer with a, with Georgia's better, but Cincinnati's for real. So that got good play. Small chance. So yeah. like the third most likely was the dominant okay. win. Small Fair chance enough. was 61%. Some chance was 26%. But I'm always curious about the edges. No way got a lot more votes than a good chance. Like like they get blown out, got a lot more votes, 11%, than they're almost equal, which got 2%. I'm fine with that. So that is, that is interesting. I mean, I'm not... I didn't think a lot of people would think that Georgia and Cincinnati are almost equal, except Cincinnati is the number two team in the country right now. I think that answers more about Georgia. But I I think it is appropriate that no way only got 11%, because I think there were times earlier in the year when that would have been much higher. And I think it's appropriate to be a small sliver now who thinks they couldn't even get on the field with Georgia, because I think they could certainly get on the field. I might do some chance instead of small chance based on Desmond Ritter and Jerome Ford and what they can do offensively. Um, and can they get after the quarterback enough? And if Georgia's offense isn't great, I, I would give Desmond Ritter as the type of quarterback I would give a chance against this Georgia defense. I almost think you need a quarterback like Desmond Ritter, who's not going to get rattled, who can do a little bit with his legs, who can make the big times throws when needed. Uh, you know, maybe – Maybe he's not, you know, Joe Burrow or Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence, but I think Desmond Ritter is the exact mold of a quarterback you'd want to send in against this swarm of bees. So I, I do sort of agree with that. All right, we got to do it quick, kicking them out. These were the options to kick someone out. Five and one Oregon after beating Cal 24-17. Should we kick them out? Five and one Old Miss after beating Tennessee. So I gave the option, Shahan. I'm giving them as a choice. Six and one Kentucky after losing to Georgia and six and one Iowa after losing to Purdue. So only, only one team, only two teams lost last week. But just because you didn't lose doesn't mean you shouldn't get kicked out. If your win was bad enough to sort of reaffirm some of the doubts we had before, you certainly could get kicked out. Who would you kick out, Shahad? I think this is easy. It's Kentucky. They were not built to keep up with Georgia. I don't think that they're going to be able to. And, uh, as much as I'd love to kick Ole Miss out at this point, I think that there is more of a path for them to get back into the conversation than Kentucky. I agree with that, and so did the Texters. 62% kicking out Kentucky. Who do you think got kicked out second, though? Oh, I, did people say Iowa? <laughs> Iowa did. And I do think people react to the yeah, loss in the yeah. moment, right? It's more like, well, they just lost. And it was a terrible loss. It's at home. By in a game that they weren't competitive to Purdue, like it is a legitimately terrible yeah, loss. Three scores. Twenty three percent said Iowa, eight percent Old Miss, seven percent Oregon. I do think Iowa, Old Miss, and and Oregon are all on alert right now. Right, that is, it is not going to take much for all three of those teams. It might not take a loss to get kicked out. Just like a bad win that reaffirms the doubts might be enough, but Kentucky is out. That brings us back again to 11. We are always willing to get the 12, which means we might get the 13 at the start of the show. 
if Michigan State would have been voted in the way the Texers wanted, we would have gotten to 13 at the start of the show knowing someone's got to be kicked out. So we would have gotten to 12 at the end. But instead, we were 12 at the beginning. We're 11 at the end. Goodbye to Kentucky. Welcome to Oklahoma State. Welcome to anybody who's joined this show for the first time. Thanks so much for listening. Hello again to the people who have been with us for multiple weeks. Could not be more grateful. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday pod. If you're on Apple, try the Tuesday pod for three bucks a month to get all those Tuesday pods. And make sure you are reading Shahan J. Haraja at cbssports.com. For Shahan, I'm Doug, and that was the College Football Playoff Show. The College Football Playoff Show, where the playoff never ends. <laughs>